I heard someone say recently that the portraits of Christ in the book of Hebrews are so chock full of great stuff that it's kind of like experiencing a spiritual nosebleed. So you may want to grab a tissue as you turn to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. When you find Hebrews 2, please stand with me for reading God's word. We're going to read verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might Free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted In that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would be praised today, that your will would be done, that your strength and your power would be evident among us, and Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. Continuing his argument uh, regarding the superiority of Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews answers a common question. Why did Jesus become a man? It's a good question. But I venture to guess that it's not one that you asked as you went through the week this past week. Our questions hit closer to home. Like, why is life so hard? Why am I suffering? Why did I get fired? Why did she break up with me? Why did I get this illness? Why are the temptations so strong? Why can't I make friends? And so on. What I want you to see this morning is that the answer to the Jesus question leads us to the answers to all the others. And so if you would bear with me, We're going to consider the Jesus question first, and in the process, hopefully discover some answers to our other questions as well. Now, although we don't know the name of the human writer of Hebrews, it's obvious that the Holy Spirit inspired deeply theological and intensely practical words that speak to us right where we live. I'm finding that to be more and more true each day. 
So far in the book of Hebrews, we have seen that Jesus is greater and better and stronger than anyone and anything. And that we must pay close attention to that so that we don't drift away from it. And that although mankind forfeited his privilege of being over the world due to sin, that Jesus, in tasting death for everyone, answered the sin question once for all. Restoring mankind's dignity and his standing before God. And now let's answer, and excuse me, consider the question, why did Jesus become a man? He became man simply to provide salvation. As we saw in verse 9, he tasted death for everyone. He went through the full experience for everyone. He was our substitute. Now verse 10 says that it was fitting for him for whom are all things and from whom are all things. That's referring to God the Father. And it was fitting for him in bringing Many sons to glory to perfect the author of salvation through sufferings. Now the phrase, bringing many sons to glory, really summarizes God's program of salvation. In calling us by his grace, drawing us to himself, causing us to be born again as we respond to him in faith. Conforming us to the image of his son. In this process of bringing many sons to glory, it was appropriate for God to bring the author of that salvation through suffering. Jesus is salvation's author, the originator, its initiator, its leader. The word was actually used of a hero who founded a city, named it, and then protected it, was its champion. It was also used of someone who was the head of a family or the founder of a school of philosophy. As a military term, it meant a commander who goes ahead of his troops and blazes a trail himself for them. It signifies a leader who opens up an entirely new way for his men. What did it mean that Jesus was perfected through suffering? As God, we know that he was already perfect. But here we see that Jesus was made perfect through sufferings. Now, there was nothing lacking in his deity. To make perfect does not imply any moral imperfection in Jesus. But it refers to the human experience of pain and sorrow that Jesus went through to become the author of salvation. It was fitting for the Father to do this Because, as Isaiah 53 tells us, it pleased the Father to bruise him, to crush him, for the sake of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It was appropriate that any action done on behalf of mankind would include suffering, because, as we all know, suffering is mankind's common lot. Christ's sufferings were necessary. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus did what no mere human could do. No human being could take upon himself the sins of the world and pay the debt for those sins 
that kept mankind imprisoned to sin's power and penalty and presence. But God in the flesh could, and he did. There is a lot in the book of Hebrews in regards to attaining perfection. And what the writer of Hebrews is pointing to when when that term is used is unimpeded access to God. Unbroken communion with him. In all this, Jesus led the way. Now, I want you to go down to verse 14 for just a moment. Verse 14 says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same. Jesus fully identified with the human condition. The Greek word for partook means to be in fellowship or partnership with someone. And to share means to identify with something that is not of your original kind. Jesus was not by nature human, but he became human to provide salvation. And the ultimate reason for the incarnation was for Jesus to die for our sins. His human nature, which was without sin, was perfected through suffering So that he becomes our ultimate example, the perfect example, our champion, our forerunner, our pathfinder. He also establishes perfect righteousness. He came to establish the righteousness that he would impute or give to believers. In 2 Corinthians In chapter 5 and verse 21, we read that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 said, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. He had a resume. He had a pedigree. But he says, I count it all lost that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that's derived from the law, but having the righteousness which is through faith, faith in Christ. Jesus established perfect righteousness, but we as human beings have known many more leaders that were unrighteous, who were frail and weak and tempted to abuse their power, often lording it over those entrusted to them. Like a child with a loaded weapon, wielding power they are not able to handle. Why is it that in all the fables of kings and rulers such as King Arthur or even Robin Hood, There's always someone who comes along and rescues. Someone who is righteous. Someone you can uh, trust in. Jesus is the only one who ever lived who could handle such power and such authority and not have it go bad on him in any way. No shadow of a doubt that possibly the power that he wielded would somehow turn and He would use it in a self-serving way. 
It was fitting for Jesus to save us at the cost of his own agony. It's the ultimate illustration of real love, which involves sacrifice. Remember when King David said, I will not offer to God a sacrifice that costs me nothing? God's love for us showed itself in sacrifice. And connected to this question of why Jesus became man are the results of his actions on our behalf. What are the benefits of what Jesus did? Verses 11 through 18 give some beautiful pictures. There are many. I just want to highlight a few today. And the first is that Jesus makes us holy. Verse 11 tells us that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father. I venture to guess that there aren't many of us in this room who walked in here this morning feeling holy. I would venture to guess that more of us walked into this room feeling soiled or tainted, ruined even. Jesus makes us holy. Sanctification is God at work in the life of a believer to conform them to the image of Christ. Sanctification is God at work in us to make us who he wants us to be. He sets us apart for his service. Look over at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. Speaking of God's will in sacrificing Christ for us and its sufficiency, the writer says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And now turn over to chapter 12. In the context of looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we read in verse 14, Pursue peace with all men. Not an easy proposition. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You see, what Jesus does as he makes us holy is he qualifies us to be in God's presence. To come boldly to God's throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I've been reading in Exodus recently, and now in Leviticus, which you know is a companion piece for Hebrews. You want to understand Hebrews? Read Leviticus. But it's amazing to me how stringent the guidelines were for anyone who wanted to be anywhere near God's presence. But Jesus comes down, God comes down, Becomes a man. God comes near and opens up for us the way into his presence. And he is at work in us, in the midst of us, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our sin, in spite of how we feel about it and about ourselves. God is causing all things to work together for good to those who love him. And what we see is progress in the process. 
I hope you can see that. That you are making progress, maybe little by little, and maybe you feel like you take a huge leap back. But you see progress in the process as God is at work in you. Sanctifying. The next thing we see is that Jesus makes us a part of his family. The second part of chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Brethren, that's a fitting name for us. Jesus calls us his brothers and his sisters. Is that amazing or what? I, I have two sisters. I was uh, brought up in a family with no brothers. And I, I felt the pain. And one day I was talking to my across-the-street neighbor, and I was complaining about these two sisters that I happened to be born in the middle of. One more strike. And he mentioned to me the fact that he was an only child and that he would do anything to have sisters. He said, you could have mine. Now, Savannah over here, my... my uh, Six-year-old, she's got three sisters and a bro. So she's all set. But when I became a believer, a guy who grew up with no brothers, desperately yearning for brothers, I immediately had many, many brothers and many more sisters. It was, it was awesome. Awesome. Jesus could not be our brother unless he also was human like us. He is not ashamed to call us brethren. Isn't that interesting? We are often ashamed to openly say that we know him. Who should be more embarrassed, us or Jesus, of the identification? Remember how I said that Hebrews is a sermon, a long exposition of many Old Testament passages? Well, here the writer now gives three Old Testament references to the fact that the Messiah calls his people brethren. And the first is in Psalm 22. In fact, turn to Psalm 22. Any Jew who knew his stuff would know that this psalm was the Messiah speaking. It starts with the words that Jesus uttered from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He goes on to say, oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. Yet you are holy. You are enthroned. Verse 11, he says, be not far from me, for trouble is near. They have surrounded me. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Look at verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And then in verse 22, he says, which is quoted here in Hebrews 2, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Jesus 
in the context of worship. Calls us brethren. The next two quotes are from Isaiah chapter 8. One is from verse 17 and one is from verse 18. The first says, I will put my trust in him. In the context of a trusting community. The next is, I and the children whom God has given me. In the context of referencing family bonds. It's interesting to note though, when Jesus first called his disciples brethren. Remember in Matthew 12 and also in Luke 8, Jesus was in a house. His mother and his brothers come knocking. And the people in the house say, by the way, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. They're outside. And do you remember Jesus' response? He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he says, he who does the will of God is my mother and my sister and my brother. Sometimes I like to joke around with that one and say, I'm Jesus' sister or mother. Because Jesus said, whoever does the will of my heavenly father is my mother and my sister and my brother. But that was in reference to that specific situation. But Jesus never directly referred to his followers as brethren until after the cross. Until after his resurrection. You actually see it in Psalm 22. They pierced my hands and my feet. And then, in the midst of the congregation, amongst my brethren, I will sing your praise. After he paid the price for the salvation, we truly became his spiritual brothers and sisters. In Matthew 28 and also John 20, he says, go and tell my brethren. First time he referred to his disciples as brethren. After the cross. After the resurrection. Why after the cross? Because of what his suffering was based upon and necessitated by. He fully identified with the human condition. He took all our sins and all their punishment upon himself so that we might be able to fully identify with him. That we would fully identify with Jesus. We could not truly be his brothers and sisters until he did what he came to earth to do. And when we come to know Christ, no matter what our background, no matter what our history, Jesus says, you're part of my family. You're mine. It's wonderful to belong. And we belong to Jesus. And also, we belong to one another in the family of God. It's good news for those of us who feel left out and rejected in life. We are family in Christ. I love the fact that all over the world, before we met today and after we meet today, our brothers and our sisters are gathering around the throne to worship the king. The next thing we see is that Jesus sets us free from fear of death. Because he died and then conquered death by his resurrection. When he defeated death, He also made Satan powerless to rule over ones who had been saved. 
Satan no longer has power over death. And while he can harass believers, and while believers can give place to the devil because of unwise decisions, all who place their faith in Christ, all who walk in the Spirit, are protected by God's power and walk in freedom in Christ. He sets us free. That's what Jesus does. He bought our freedom. He bought it with his blood. Verse 15 says that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. It's clearly referring to physical death. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, I would rather be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Psalm 116.15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. We are reminded that man knows not his time. That everyone dies and that our times are in God's hands. In one sense, we are all invincible until our time comes. We will not go before the time that God has already ordained. But some people are afraid of dying. But Christians should have no fear of death itself. Because death is a defeated enemy, which now serves God's purposes in a believer's life. You see, physical death becomes a gateway into eternal life with God, without sin. When I was a kid, I was afraid of death. But I was afraid of a lot of things, actually. I was afraid of mushrooms. When I was in kindergarten, a kid in my class would always go to the back wall and grab a few mushrooms and have them in his hand and he'd come up to me and he'd say I got a mushroom and I would hightail it out of there because I was afraid of them. I don't know why but I was also afraid of death. It's interesting in the not too distant past I was also much afraid of dying. Wondering if at any moment I might kick the bucket as it were. But you know what that's rooted in? Arrogance. Saying that I know how to organize history better than God does. Fear is like a vice grip at times. Jesus came to set us free. There's something else. The last thing I'll point out. That Jesus sets us free and helps us in temptation. Jesus doesn't give help to angels, verse 16 says. They're on their own. That's not true. But it says he does not give help to angels. What does that mean? It literally means he does not take hold of angels. But he does take hold. He does help the seed of Abraham. Who's that? That is all who come to God by faith. To take hold of is the idea of offering help to someone who is in dire need. It pictures grabbing them, in a sense, away from the precipice, away from falling off the cliff, 
and grabbing them and snatching them back and putting them in safety. He does not take hold of angels, but he takes hold of us. He helps us. He rescues us. The Hebrews should have been the first ones to recognize the significance of the incarnation. That Jesus fulfilled God's covenant to Abraham, the promised seed, and was born in the line of Abraham to fulfill messianic prophecies. Salvation was the goal. And Jesus rescues us from sin's power and penalty and one day sin's presence. Aren't you looking forward to that day? When we will be rescued not only from sin's power and penalty, but also the presence of sin. When we are in heaven with Jesus, there is no more sin. It's interesting that Jesus helps us in temptation. One of, I, have, I have a blessing and a curse that I've lived with all my life. It's looking younger than I really am. Now, some of you say, well, how is that such a curse? I mean, I'll tell you, when I was in high school, I could get into the movies for the little kid price. That was embarrassing. Good deal, but embarrassing. But one of the sins I am often tempted to give into is that of justifying myself before man. Uh, It's happened my whole life. It happened to me just yesterday. I met a fellow pastor and... uh, He's asking me, so where do you serve and blah, blah, blah. And, and then he says, so you the youth pastor? And I said, no. But I thought at, at, at the time, not that it's a bad thing, but at the time I thought, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. My mom and dad are the same way. They are, look younger than they really are. And it's a blessing and a curse. Jesus helps us in temptation, every temptation we face, no matter how big or how small. And in verse 17, it tells us that he had to be made like his brethren. He had to. In all things. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. There's no other way to get to God. Jesus if you want to deal with anything pertaining with God, you've got to go through Jesus. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. It says that he did that to make propitiation. Big word, but wonderful meaning. Propitiation for the sins of the people. Quite simply, it means to satisfy. It means to make satisfaction for the wrath of God against sin. It pictures the mercy seat. That God would show mercy that Jesus would satisfy the requirements for paying for sin. And when he did that, guess what he did? He secured full and final forgiveness. You see, temptation and forgiveness has a tie-in. Because we often succumb to temptation. And we often go to God asking for forgiveness. Seeking forgiveness. By taking on human nature, Jesus showed mercy on us. Satisfied God's requirements. Secured that final forgiveness. And in verse 18 we read that in that he was tempted in what he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Come right by our side while we are tempted. You know 1 Corinthians 10, 13? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. 
but will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape also, so that you can endure it, so you can stand up, so that you cannot buckle under the pressure. Jesus is fully capable of understanding us. He went through more temptation than we will ever dream of going through. I want you to see something about temptation. It may not be abundantly clear right away, and it may not register right away, and you may have to mull over it a bit, as I still am doing. But the idea is this. As perfect God and perfect man, with no sin nature and no propensity to sin, Jesus never could or would give in, and that made his temptation all the more strong, all the more forceful. Because of who he is, Jesus took the full brunt, took the full weight, the entire load of, of temptation upon himself. But he handled it, that full weight of temptation, by the very fact that he could not give in. What do I mean by that? We give in much sooner. But because he was sinless and not able to sin, he took it all, so he felt it actually harsher than we ever would. It's kind of like this. Our temptation often is like breaking a twig between our fingers. We buckle quickly under the pressure. But take, for example, Jesus' temptation by Satan. That temptation was like someone trying to run through a million-mile thick, solid wall of steel. He gave it all he had, but he couldn't even dent the surface. But the full weight came upon him by the very virtue that he could not buckle under that pressure. And we buckle far, far sooner. After his death, Jesus, as we have already read, was crowned with glory and honor. And through his death, he has done what that salvation intended, brought many sons and daughters to glory. See, Jesus first had to suffer with fallen humanity before he was made a high priest for humanity. Jesus is the merciful and faithful high priest who is able to help those who are being tempted in any temptation they face because he suffered while he was tempted. You see, Jesus knows what it feels like to be rejected and to be tortured and to be misunderstood. And if you follow Jesus, he knows all about your problem and your pain. He knows it all, more even than we do. Let me ask you a question. If that's true, and I'm asking myself this question every day, in your life, why are you so fearful? In your life, why are you so discouraged? Why is God so small and your problem so big? He identified fully with us. Becoming man so that we could fully identify with him. He suffered so that we would experience his glory. He went to the cross so that we could be with him in heaven forever. We who are so used to feeling unholy, 
We who are so used to suffering and pain and being left out and fearful and tempted. Guess what? We have great reason to be full of faith and actually greatly encouraged to be able to say all is well and will be well. The truth that God wants us to be very familiar with is this. Jesus went before us. William Wallace, the champion of Scotland, portrayed in the movie Braveheart, didn't just send his men into battle. He went before them. He led the charge. He paved the way. He went first. While Longshank's men were sent blindly into battle while he sat idly by, Wallace went before his men, leading the charge into battle. Jesus has gone before us, providing salvation, fully identifying with us and with our human condition so that we could fully identify with him. And he walks with us, fighting for us, knowing, caring, understanding, hearing when we call. He came to meet our greatest need. And since he took care of that, everything else is covered. Please stand with me for prayer. Lord God, we come to you needy, often broken, many times feeling very unworthy to even come to your throne of grace. We praise you, Lord God, that we do have reason to be greatly encouraged and full of faith because of what you have done. Lord, we praise you, we thank you, and we lay our lives at your feet asking for your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.